This podcast is brought to you by absolutely no one. The Bald and the Beautiful Podcast with Dave Vella. Who the hell is Dave Vella? Hey, thanks for joining me for this episode of The Bald and the Beautiful. I'm Dave Vella, and this conversation is with a lady who has seen a lot, done a lot, and had a lot happen to her. I've known her for nearly 30 years, and she's definitely lived a wild roller coaster of a life a life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. She chats to me candidly about her sexual abuse at the hands of her older brother, her days as a penthouse pet cetaphile and the rock star she dated as a result, and even the time she spent two weeks in a crowded Greek jail. She acknowledges that her life has been a series of one in a million type of events, both good and bad, and we chat about some of them, but these will only give you a glimpse into the extraordinary situation she has found herself in. She's a loving mum to a 21-year-old son, and she is raised by herself, and she's a very spiritual lady. She spent a lot of time delving into self-awareness. She now lives a life somewhat quieter than that of her youth, however, but the sex and drugs and rock and roll theme continues as she deals with her staff and her clients as the madam of a brothel. My guest today is the beautiful Susie G. I realised today that we first met in 1991. Okay. That's nearly 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Holy shit. That's amazing. 1991. <laughs> um, do you remember how we met? Uh, I'm just trying to think. It was to do with the pet show with, yep. with Terry and you were... You were, co- you were coming on to be our roadie. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was dating one of the girls in your show, Dominique. You had already started I'd seeing already started Dommy seeing, outside. Yeah. Yeah. And that's right. And then you ca- started to come to shows. Mm. That's right. And I remember when we first met, it was, um, it was more of me thinking you were uh, sort of like young and upcoming, so I had to pull you in your place a little bit. <laughs> really? <laughs> I remember... Um, it was it was more like yeah you were like needing to carry our bags or something and be our apprentice and uh, that was the way Dominique well Dom you know yeah <laughs> dominating the whole thing she was just like you know he's not allowed to think he's the rock star or anything <laughs> while he's doing this so so what it was is I I came on tour with these girls as a show called. I think it was called the Penthouse Pet Party. That's right. So it was yeah. basically just a bunch of the Penthouse pets. Yes. Penthouse being the, the, the man yeah. magazine. Yeah. Um, it was in very similar way. It was like a manpower show. For well, that's that where manpower came from. Yeah. Because Terry actually dated uh, Billy Cross when when we were starting the, the pet show. Oh, there you go. And uh, he, uh, you know, sort of knew that it was a good idea, mm. but being a male-dominated sort of world, I guess, in as far as, like, you can go far. The pet show, there was all me- already too many women in Vegas, and so Manpower went over, you yeah. know, Billy had that idea to open all that up. But well, uh, you well, can't take rice to the Chinese, so, <laughs> you know, Australian centrefolds don't make that much difference in yeah. the US, whereas the manpower thing, well, I think Well, in the US, just- the, 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 the idea of stripping was very much cent- centred around pole dancing, around the clubs, around That's the right. tipping. Yep. 
in Australia it wasn't like that. No. And they weren't used to the show as such because they, they didn't want the show. They, no. The, the men wanted to have women up close and personal in their face sliding up on a pole. Yes. And the reason manpower worked was because women enjoyed sitting back a little bit. Being and watching more, the show. Being more of that voyeur yep. and watching it. Yeah. And that's, I think, the reason for the differences. But yeah. I remember when I joined you guys, I came on as the road crew, so I was right. basically setting up lights and gaffing down. <laughs> and I was married down. at the time. That's and right. You and your husband, my was husband on our road Hayden, crew. Yeah, yeah, and yourself um, were, main, and then our manager was Evan. Yes. And uh, you three were like the three musketeers yeah. that would be in the truck full of equipment while yeah, drive, all of us all the would girls be in the, the Tarago yeah, heading yeah. out to. Blackwater, Queensland oh, or something. Okay, the tour that we did was the, yeah, the North Queensland tour. Yeah. And I remember there's a, there's a few things that stick in my mind about that tour. Actually, there's there's three things that stick in my <laughs> mind about that time. A, it was all very new for me anyway because right. yeah. I was only 21, 22. That's right. Dating this hot little penthouse pet. I don't even know how that came about. It just <laughs> happened. And then I'm on the road with these five or six awesome, gorgeous penthouse pets. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> I've died and gone to well, heaven. Well, I've got to tell you, you kept you cool because <laughs> I didn't notice that back then. And then, and then, so the things that stick out in my mind were when we went to a place called Bowen, which is North Queensland. Yes. We went to this place and we played this dodgy little, I don't even know what it was. It was, was a RSL club or something, like a little no, bowling club or no, something. No, I don't think it was because there was no security there. It was like a hall. Oh, the community centre. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's there, right. There was no, there was no, like there was no security. The yes. only, the only men that were in the place were me, Evan and Hayden. That, right. There was no one. I think even the bar staff might have been women. women. Yep. And the stage was literally only about half a foot off the ground. <laughs> it, it wasn't much. And I remember it wasn't a, a massive venue. I think it might have held 220, 230 people. Right, and th which was typical of the small towns. Yep. And it was like we were taking the glamour, you know, the glamour yeah. to the small towns. And it was a bit Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. It was a bit. We, were, <laughs> we were real women, not yeah. trannies, and, you know. But the men, oh my goodness, like it was, like these were. These were farm blokes. These were, like, this is the first time Cow I heard... Cow cockies from yeah. out west, yes. This is the first time I heard expressions like, like the guys were screaming out, show us your gutted rabbits. Exactly. That's the, that's definitely... The, I was like, what? The worst thing. And, and even at the Canberra Nationals years later, there was a 16-year-old boy holding that up on a poster show to me when we... Show us your gutted rabbit. The other one was, show us your axe wound. Oh. And the last one was... Show us where the pig fucked you. Oh my god! And I was, um, and I, that see, would be more. That would have been um, Cowra down at where they had the abattoirs. Maybe, but it was definitely <laughs> definitely Bowen because <laughs> I remember <laughs> it imprinted on my brain how Neanderthal men can be. Yes, and it was actually quite a scary situation yes. because the more they drank, obviously, the rowdier they got. Yes, and I came to this realization that I was this twenty-one-year-old on this adventure for the first time with two other blokes and these women and 220, 230 guys drinking heavily in the crowd. And I'm thinking, man, they've only got to decide to get a bit aggro. And it would all go sideways. And it sideways. would all go sideways yeah, very, yeah, very quick. Yeah, no, and that did happen. You know, we've had that happen probably twice in the 
six or seven years we were on the road mm. and uh, one of those was Cowra and they have the abattoirs down there. So yeah. it was like guys are chopping up cows all day <laughs> yeah. and then they came to our show and they were drinking not glasses of, jugs of Jack and Coke and, or bourbon and Coke or whatever. They were getting served jugs. <sighs> and I remember that was when I did my... Uh, Kaysan, you know, cold chisely. Uh, I was like a soldier girl, and yeah, I'd come right. out in the soldier uniform. And I remember I used to try and comic up the the first part of it, and yeah. I used to chew gum and have like glasses on, and and in this um, sort of almost not a ghillie suit, but camouflage yeah, gear, I, I, I guess, remember, I remember, which yeah. could rip off pretty quickly. Yeah. And I remember I used to walk along like just doing a smart swagger with the chewing gum in, you know, chewing away really big in my Didn't mouth. Didn't you, like, give it to a and guy? I, no, I used to press it on their forehead. Oh, I'd walk right. into the crowd and I'd walk along and I'd think, which one of the guys in this group of friends is the one they all pick on because it's pretty noticeable usually. Yeah. And I'd put the chewing gum right in the middle of his forehead as I, you know, just sort of like, and, and walk past as part of the show. Anyway, went in Cowra, the guy was sort of looking like he was half asleep. So I went up and put the chewing gum on his mouth and he was punchy, drunk, sleep. And he got up and he tried to king hit me in the middle, like in the middle of my solo. Yeah. And then the crowd just was getting rowdier and rowdier. <clears throat> By the time Terry came on, to, she used to do the last solo of the show. And Terry, they were Terry Bowie, Bowie was the, um, I think she was. Head of the year. 1989? Uh 1988 she yeah. was and she came out as a big Indi what, big Indian feather yeah, yeah. That, yep 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 and well she, we all changed our solos around but in that particular sh mm. show she was like that and but that's when they had they'd really started saying some of the um, loose stuff show us your cunt and things like this screaming that out the top of their lungs and then um, because it's a topless show when Terry finished her solo she had said to us before she went on the crowd's really rowdy out there I don't know how long my solo will go for mm -hmm. let's pack the van and let's get ready to go <laughs> you know we were sort of ahead of it ready for the because we boogie. could feel you know like we're you know I'm I'm not cut off or anything I could feel this intense mm. aggro building up and pretty similar to where you're talking about at Bowen there were only a few guys in, well, there was none at Bowen, but there was a few guys, but they were like 70 from the RSL club and they were <laughs> our bouncers. And we kind of knew that they weren't going to be able to control this massive crowd of abattoir workers. Yeah. And so, bang. Um, as soon as Terry didn't take her pants off at the end and went to walk off stage, 300 guys rushed the stage and they actually knocked the wall of the dressing room down. We just got out the back door in time before the whole inside wall of the dressing room came crashing down. Unreal. We made it to the bus and then we had this convoy. We were staying in a motel just on the outskirts of town and we had this convoy of people. It was like... I don't know what they were going to do to us when they caught us, but there were carloads of angry men chasing oh, our wow. bus and there was this round, one roundabout in the whole of I think, <laughs> and we're like going around and around and there was like a, a traffic jam in the roundabout <laughs> to try to get back to the motel. And we went to turn into the motel and Evan went, they'll just wreck the motel and we went, keep driving. And so <laughs> we're driving for hours out of this town until the headlights behind us stop, finally oh, stopped. Man. And then uh, it was probably an hour later that we 
sort of crippled ourselves back to the motel and got out of there before daybreak sort of thing. It was just, um, it, yeah, it was one of the scariest times I ever had on the road. But you got to look back and laugh on but it because a, it was a, ridiculous. What were they going to do to us when I they know. caught us? But it's a, it's a real lethal mix, isn't it? You've got beautiful women yep. getting pretty much Half naked, naked, you know. Yep. You've got a whole bunch of men that living in a country town that haven't seen, for, yep. especially women like that. Yep. And in close proximity with with that access, yep. and drinking copious amounts of alcohol, yep. it's just a recipe for disaster. Oh, yeah. That's why I could never really work out why Evan did the community centres and not the RSL or whatever mm. in town. And you know, you find things out in hindsight that he was just a uh, embezzling bastard, basically. <laughs> and so we got to stay in really kind of shit accommodation and play shit venues because he was pocketing most of the Make money. More money. Yeah. yeah. Uh, fantastic promoters. Yeah. Don't H we love them? How long were you doing? Well, first of all, I want to ask you, what? how did you get into becoming a... Penthouse pet. A, a penthouse pet. Was, okay. Did the penthouse pet come before the dancing or the dancing come before the penthouse pet? Uh, well, I've, you know, typical Aussie girl, fizzy physical culture. I started that when I was a little girl. So mm. fizzy and dancing was sort of part of my life. Mm. Um, but I hadn't done it for a few years. And then modelling basically was it. Yeah. When I was um, mid-teens, uh, friends of mine took a couple of photos and I ended up having a boyfriend whose mum was a casting agent in Sydney and she said to me, you should go to June Riley's and try and get on the books there for commercials and things like that. So I went to Riley's and got on their books and I don't know, a few commercials back in the day, Polaroid sunglasses, Stimarol, chewing gum, all oh, that sort of stuff. <laughs> and so I did a few commercials like that back in the day, which was good money at the time or whatever, gave me a um, little bit of ego, but I'm also, I was, um, doing my psych nurse training at the same time. So I was sort of doing that So I was just get, you, get you through the nursing. Yeah, and yeah. also, you know, nursing's the lowest paid, one of the lowest paid jobs mm. in the world. So I wasn't going to be buying my house just being a nurse. So this <laughs> modelling was kind of like the other yeah. way I could get around the world. I, avid traveller at heart. Yeah. So, you know, there you sort of, I'm not from a wealthy family, um, hard-working, middle-class Aussie mm. family with its own problems. Yeah. <laughs> the nuclear family, of course, has yeah. all its problems. Um, and just in amongst that, you know, I dealt with quite a lot of serious stuff when I was little, really serious sexual abuse from a brother that was 11 years older than me. Mm. Um, How old were you when that happened? Two to uh, seven or eight years of age. Yep. Yeah, pretty heavy. Mm. And um, Do you remember much of that? Uh, bottom line is I have a lot of memory coming back since I gave birth to my son, mm. more so. I'd really buried it. I'd really put my brother on about, a pedestal. I've heard about that for, sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah, put my brother on a pedestal for a really long time. I mean, he nearly choked me to death when I was about seven, nearly eight years of age because I went, you know, at school they, were, they first taught us about stranger danger or sexual abuse or whatever. I, didn't, I actually thought that every girl in Australia had a relationship with the, the, her older brother or whatever mm. in some weird way in my head. Well, it's your it normal, had been happening it? to me since I was two yeah. and weekly, you know. Yeah. Um, it ended up being, you know, some uh, as sick as this sounds, it even ended up being like on the lounge room floor in front of the telly at 
midday on a Saturday while the WWF wrestling was on mm. and he'd be pretending to wrestle me mm. on the lounge room floor. And my mother would be in the kitchen and my father would be mowing the lawn or something, you mm. know, like as sick as that sounds. My mum was a Scorpio and I really don't know if she knew or whatever, but by the time um, I realised how much it had messed me up, I guess, through my life. I have a lot of missing moments, um, whatever, but... Do you have missing moments because you've intentionally blocked it? Blocked out I don't stuff? know about intention. I think that your subconscious does it because you dissociate. You mm. uh, and I actually think that you know, not saying I have all this multiplicity going on, but I've certainly got an alter <laughs> ego that comes in and helps me when I'm feeling really meek mm. and mild. Um, it's a larger personality. And when I realise that there's any predatorish type of energy around me or if someone's attacking me, look out. Mm. I think the, uh, there's one thing in my life, a movie called The Butterfly Effect. and there I was just a, say that on my list it's uh, on Netflix to watch that again because okay. I remember from years ago it was yeah. pretty awesome, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, Ashton Kusher's in it and he plays a guy that goes from it's sort of flashbacks and then they go for what would have happened if it happened a different way yeah, and they give right. you about six different scenarios. But there's one scenario in that when he's a little boy and he's actually got the alcoholic father of the little girl that he was getting had to do the sex movies or something with and he actually in one of the, um, if this was the scenario, he actually verbally attacks the guy and goes, fucking touch us, you fucking fuck stick. Like I was actually someone that would have a go at people from a young age mm. and I didn't realise the subconscious reason for that, yeah. which, you know, if I'm getting attacked, I go, go into real attack mode and that's a PTSD thing, mm. you know, like and, well, that's from when I'm two, but I guess the PTSD must have kicked in more when I'm seven because I didn't know it was wrong in the back of my head for a start and... Then when I did, I confronted him. So he actually choked me to uh, death. Oh, so you confronted him at seven? Yeah. And okay. so I, he's actually grabbed me to shut me up around the neck and choked me to Freaking death. Freaking out, realising yeah. that. Okay. And I had my first out-of-body experience when I was seven. Mm. I remember, you know, like I remember being near the ceiling, looking down and seeing me unconscious and my brother freaking out and like I don't know if he bargained with the black side or whatever but it was just like you know I'm in this moment and then I must have decided I'd go back into my body and be unconscious you know because mm. after that he never touched me sexually again but because I think the killing me for a few minutes or whatever had happened um you know or it had got real you know I was definitely out of my body looking down but whatever happened in that moment, he decided not to fuck with, fuck me, but to fuck with me, which mm. seems to be in a predator, you know, that's all they do. Mm. They either fuck you or fuck with your head. So um, he always, I, I'd always been jibed, you know, for ev everything. It's, it's, it's a weird thing because mm. I, I know I've got a high IQ and I know I'm uh, reasonably genetically blessed, if you want to say, yeah. but... It did a lot of things, even my sexual maturity. Uh, uh, you know, there's a, a couple of really personal things that happened, but I didn't menstruate till I was 22. Okay. And I didn't grow breasts. That's why I had them enhanced yep. and things like that. But, you know, 
you, I don't know, what can I say? I've always been this eternal optimist. I'm not a pessimist. So lucky somehow in my makeup, whatever happens to me, I kind of seem to be able to keep going and um, brush it off or turn it into a joke. And some people think that's sick humour or whatever, but it's how I survive. It's a way of coping. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So you said that it really came back to you when you had your child? Yeah, when I was two, when Hunter turned two, two. Yeah. it was crazy. It was like someone had started movies in my head. Mm. Like I'd go to the, uh, give him, and I used to put a few lavender drops and this in his bath because if it was before nap time or something like that, and I'd put my hand in to swirl the water around and it would be like these movies were going through my head, like, and it felt like sitting on a train. It was a weird, it was the weirdest feeling because I've sat on a stationary train and had another train move. Mm. It's a weird feeling, like you should be going or something. And I sort of was going, whoa! And all of these memories were coming back, and I was, you know, like getting, getting truth chills yeah. and getting um, really terrified I had huge anxiety with Hunter and the weirdest thing was I was in a relationship I won't mention any names but <clears throat> I was in a relationship for less than two years but I'd kind of been predated by this guy to um, yeah realize that it was a real mistake but he'd been working on not like being the predator and me being the victim in the relationship sort mm. of thing and Hunter was too and it I was, terif I was so terrified that I was nearly crippled. And then I thought I, was, I sort of had to get out of the house where I was and, and everything was crashing, my whole world was crashing in on me. And I remember having Hunter in the stroller, uh, being in a main street and coming along and there's this shop called The Bridge. And I remember going in there and it was a healing crystal shop and this book just fell off the shelf when I walked in there onto the ground and it was the quest of the warrior woman. And I picked it up and the lady named Barbara that owned the shop, she's ended up closing that shop and moving to Ayers Rock or something. But um, I remember her saying to me, oh, you can have that book. And it was one of these auspicious moments. Mm. And that book was about the seven arrows and just um, honesty, integrity, courage. I, I, I've won't rattle them all off now but um it was to do with that and I just remember it gave me hope and I and I read a few pages of that book and it gave me the strength to change my life right at that moment I could go home and stand up to this guy I was living with and decide that I was getting out of a relationship where I was predated basically mm. all the time um yeah, so... How, how has that affected, like, these these feelings that, that happen? Yeah. Right? When, when Hunter's about two, yep. you're starting to get these, these remembrances, you're yep. starting to sort of piece a few things together. Is that your phone? Not my... Whose phone is that? Just let it go. Just let it go. Yeah, we won't, um, won't. I think it's next door. Okay. <laughs> um, so you started having these feelings... How did that sort of affect you moving forward with your son? Uh, well, this is the thing. Um, all my life, I kind of, I've never been stuck because I think I'm, the, I'm a Pisces and I'm a mutable person. So mm. I'm never fixed with anything. So for me, it's 
I find I'm I'm the great getting answers for things person. Mm. If there's a problem, I'm not going to be self-injurious and let that problem just keep affecting me. Mm. I need to move forward from it all the time. So I'm going to find some way of healing myself or some way of looking into why this is going on. Because the one thing that I made a huge decision when I knew that I was pregnant with, see, I, I didn't even get pregnant with Hunter till I was 38 because I wasn't going to have kids because I wasn't going to bring a child into the world that could be abused, mm. you know? Like, I, I know exactly what you're saying yep. because I felt the same you way did. with, because I was abused as a kid. And yeah, you, you, I remember, you know yeah, well, I know so, we've touched on yeah, that, but so, we haven't really delved yeah, too so far in. I'll, yeah, well, I was abused from six till 12 and I've forgotten most of my childhood as well. Like yeah. I've, whether I've, it's intentional, this is why I asked you that question. So yeah. whether it's intentional or not intentional, I cannot remember. It's just disassociating yeah. for your own protection. Yeah, basically. I think that's what it is. You yeah. just, you just, your brain just blacks stuff out. It does. Quite, it puts it in another place yeah. to protect you. Yeah, and that's what it does. And that's really, it's really interesting. It's really scary, but it's, it's quite annoying sometimes because I'll have people go, "Oh, can't you remember that?" And I'm like, "Nope." Because you actually freeze. Mm. At, back at that time yeah. and you have no memory of that mm. and it's your other dissociated personality that's getting you through that time. Yep. And I've, you know, not just to do with abuse, but if I've had times uh, that push me back into that anxious space, then sometimes I can disassociate for another year, yeah. you know, and then I'll come back in and then someone says to me, oh, blah, blah, I have this fantastic memory with lots of fine detail about lots of things, but there's some things I have nothing. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And I, I've, <clears throat> I've done the same stuff. I When I was growing up and I didn't have my child until I was 42, so similar, similar, similar to you. Similar to me, yep. But I was always of the opinion I'm happy to not have a child yeah. because I didn't want to bring a child and cop the same stuff that I copped. Exactly, yeah. and that's how I felt. And then, you know, gosh. Because that's uh, our reality. That yes, was, it was. Our reality to the world is people hurt us and people fuck with you. So you need to protect so yourself. So why, why, have, why someone have someone else, else yeah. that's vulnerable or yeah. that you're going to be responsible yeah. for their vulnerability? Yeah. You know, that was It the made huge, me too sad. It yes. made me sad to think about that I could bring someone else into the world and that shit could happen exactly. to them. Exactly. Yeah. And this is where, look, I struggle a lot now because, oh, gosh, I've tried to be brave enough every now and again. When it all came up, you know, like it's years later, and then I um, went to Heartfelt House. I did an 18-week course. What's Heartfelt House? It's uh, to do with adult survivors of child sexual abuse. Okay. And at the time, they were only doing women's groups. It's up at... I think in Ganella Bar or something. So I went there for 18 weeks. It nearly killed me, mm. putting everything on the table. And I had so much coming up. And I'm sure, you know, like, and you're in this re really um, vulnerable position yourself, but you, they're telling you you're in a safe space. But out of 12 people, you're still a bit paranoid. Like mm. who, can I really trust these people? Mm. And then after a couple of weeks, I was really able to, I mean, you're doing a lot of writing as well. They're telling you to journal and okay. so it's bringing a lot of stuff up. But that, um, it, it, like I, 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 I cut off from my family for all sorts of reasons and different things. And um, actually when my son turned two, my brother, uh, I'm sorry, when my son was born, um, sorry, it was when he turned two, everything started coming up. But when my son was born, I'd had a lot of contact with my brother, who was my abuser, yeah. up till that point. 
And when my son was born, he was born eight weeks preemie. And that, you know, my life, it's like I'm a one in a million for good stuff and I'm a one in a million for bad stuff. But Hunter's birth was like an Amy commercial and it happened eight weeks early um, and the ambulance guys dropped me up at um, Royal North Shore Hospital and when I was coming out of the back of the ambulance, they were talking to their mate about a barbecue on Friday, typical Australian yobbo guys. And they turned around and hit the wrong button on the gurney. And the gurney started heading, and I'm at Royal North Shore, so I'm going down the middle of Royal North Shore driveway to the six-lane Pacific Highway. And oh, backwards, just, just, in a gurney backwards. It was right? just free free, free flowing wow. with these two beer gutted overweight men screaming, <laughs> running. They were like, I'm watching slow motion while I'm having no idea what's happening and whether a semi's going to hit me because I'm going backwards here, right? And the lady on the desk at maternity is almost standing up on the desk. I can just see her going, ah, they've dropped her. And, um, and I'm flying backwards and can see all of this happening and I'm, and I, you just, you know, like I'm just stunned. But thank God, some old, one of the old doctors had an old Rolls and he parked it and left the tire sticking out. So my gurney's gone flying down, hit the tire, and then catapulted up on t across the road, up under the grass, and stopped. And I'm like freaking out. And like they'd taken me to Royal North Shore Hospital as a precaution so that I didn't have the baby because I had a slow <laughs> leak and he was born an hour later, wow. you know. And it, the whole thing was really funny because I'd seen a, a movie called Crash, which was this cult movie with it had this Dr. Vaughan in it and he was really spooky and scary and I'd just seen that movie and because I'm, you know, at North Shore Hospital, I didn't have my obstetrician or anything, it was all emergency this doctor called Dr. Fowler walks in and he looked exactly like Vaughn out of the movie. And I just went, what? And he goes, I'm not Vaughn. Like this to me straight away. So yeah. he'd obviously seen yeah. or other people had said something to him. And then the nurse walks in and she's got a label called Sister Dangerfield. Uh -huh. I really thought <laughs> that everyone was having a go at me. And I'm bang, you know, like, and then Hunter's born and... It's eight weeks early and he's really premmy and it was really serious. And, you know, in the first week I could burst into tears because he, he, was, he was just under two kilos when he was born and he went down in the first week to about 1,500 grams because he could only be fed formula. I'd had no cholesterol or anything, no nothing in my boobs because it's eight weeks early and you're pumping away like a mad thing and nothing's happening. Mm. So you actually have, the babies have to be fed with formula. And I'm wheat allergic, so, so is Hunter. And, I, and in um, baby formula, there's whey and wheat and all mm. sorts of things. So I didn't have any idea. And he's di basically dying in front of my eyes. Um, and I looked up at the, at the window in the hospital and the sunlight was coming in and it just was, and I was begging for an answer, you know, it was really, really weird. But I kind of feel like there was some sort of divine intervention right at that moment because the sunshine came on the, on this formula tin that was like on a windowsill. <laughs> and I went, that's the answer, you know, and I got one of the nurses in the NIC, it, it's called NIC, um, neonatal, um, 
ICU, you know, it's um, the NIC unit and you go, and I ran over to one of the nurses and I said, can you please get, can change his formula? And she said, we can't do that. And they started, you know, getting all official with me because I'm tattooed and body pierced and things like that. And they're Tracy type nurses and yeah. yeah, I'm out of the box. So I get need to be spoken to like a three-year-old. I wouldn't know anything about my own son. So I'm having an argument with these nurses about changing the formula up. And then I just said, get me um, my doctor on the phone. And I rang the doctor and he said, mother knows best. And over the phone, he changed the formula. To, we changed it to soy rather than just the normal. And there's no whey or anything in it. It was just all yep. pure soy. And from this shrinking little shrinking violet, within like two weeks, he just looked like a tomato in a hothouse. He'd just become this normal baby. But it's funny how your mind works because having a baby that's two months preemie, they're so tiny. He was about the size of a beanie toy. Yeah. And when I walked through the normal ward, I thought, what was wrong with, what's wrong with those babies? They all look like they're from Land of the Giants. (laughs) Yeah, it's really funny how your mind works like that. So uh, He's a good kid, Hunter. Oh, gosh. You know, um, I How old is he now? He's 21. 21, yeah. Yeah, I'm actually really proud that I bought somebody that contributes into the world rather than some Mm. criminal-minded child. No, he's he's a fantastic kid. Um, How's it been being a a single mum, raising a boy? That, you know, difficult because um, everything, you know, even when he plays sport or whatever I go, it's a very male-oriented world. You have a son, you're, you're walking into a male-dominated world, basically. Mm. And um, a lot of people still now have a, an idea or a connotation that to be a single mum is bad, especially if people are religious. You know, they're supposed to be a little bit caring and a bit cool these days, but I find that there's more there's a lot of judgment. discrimination against mm. something like that. Yeah, I've yeah. been up against that for 21 years, basically, all right up until he finished school yeah. anyway. And I had to keep reminding him that just because there's prejudice like that or some other kids at school will say stuff about your mum or anything, turn around and give it to them back. Tell them it's another story about me that'll blow their socks off. <laughs> There's a lot of stories right? about you that'll blow oh, their socks look, off. Look, you know, and, and, and having him not be a smart ass, but just be brave enough to stand up for yeah. himself. Accept the reality of, of exactly. what is. Exactly. And, and he went to martial arts from, you know, seven years of age, and he's been playing rugby union since he was seven. Got himself a gold medal when he about 16 or 17 and he said I can retire now and uh, I was like perfect because you know if he's going off to uni he's actually doing chemical engineering six-year course he's very very bright at maths he's like you know top seven percent of the state in maths um and that was a trip too because as a little kid he's always been good at maths two or three years of age he used to add up my shopping in the trolley and be able to tell me like within a dollar or two what it was going to cost me yeah wow and I used to, you know, be really proud of that, but you don't want to brag about yeah. it because I already cop enough <laughs> shit from people, you know. <laughs> so anyway, just encourage that. Yeah. And and he's been shy because he doesn't have a dad in yeah. his life. Unfortunately, his father was from America. Um, yeah, that's a strange story, that one, isn't it? Because that was that the dad never... Never had anything to do with him, no, because he was a a footy player, wasn't he? Yeah, like I guess American football player that had done really well but got a shoulder injury just at the end of college. So when he was about to get picked for the 
you know, Chicago Bears or something, it all went sideways with injury. So I think he had a lot of resentment deep down on that, you know. Mm. What um, were you do- um, so you were over in America at that yeah, stage yeah, when, you, when um, you met him. Yeah, it was about... What were you doing? Is that when you were doing that... Um, the jelly wrestling and all that oh, sort of Oh, well, stuff. that was a few years before. I was just, basically, I was t- table dancing when yeah. I met his dad. Okay. <clears throat> um, that was the middle of winter in a Chicago table dancing club and one of the really upmarket ones, the Dollhouse um, at Chicago. And, you know, you had to wear, a, you had to buy $1,000 dresses to be allowed to work in that club. Mm. Like it was very, very upmarket. And a lot of very, very wealthy men from all around the world would go to that club. So, because Chicago, the big money market of the world. And um, Hunter's dad worked at the border trade, Chicago. He was a stockbroker. So I remember being up on this pedestal in the, in the club in a bit of dental floss or something. <laughs> To- it was only a topless club, so we had pants so on. But the thousand dollar dress didn't stay on too long. No. <laughs> that was for the parades and all that sort of stuff. But I remember being on the pole and having a being a twelve, and the front doors burst open. It was like a movie scene, and a bit of snow came in, and this, and he's six foot seven, right? So he commands. Well, he's a big president. football player. Yes, yeah, and he just, but a, a big um, Chicago white boy, you know, like yeah. just. Very handsome, looked like Val Kilmer a bit, the, yep. the movie star. So he's this moment of stepping in the door and he had this big cashmere coat on and um, just walked in and it was like he just commanded the place and everyone in the whole place, it just stopped for a minute, turned around and everyone sort of like went back from his energy a little bit. And I, I sort of looked down and thought, God, he looks pretty hot or something like that. And so I was actually looking at him and he came walking through and I was actually dancing for someone else. So I was, I think I turned around and put my butt in their face and I was looking at the door thinking, wow, he's really attracted me. And as he came past, he looked up at me and he pointed at me and he went and sort of winked. But, you know, there was just this kind of flirty charmer thing about him. And he goes, I'll be back to see you. And one mouthed that at me and walked off. And I'm thinking, oh, they, they, they say that to all the girls a bit, you know, yeah. it's the club, don't get too caught up in it. And I got down from the table and what you classically do is you chat to the person who's been, inverted commas, dancing you for the last half an hour or something. And if you're on a good roll with that person, you're not going to wreck it just because someone else has walked mm. into the place. And when you're on a sure thing, stick to it. That's exactly right. So I'm kind of in this headspace of where I'm trying to concentrate and talk to this customer, but, you, but, but I can only think guy. a big yeah. thing about Alton. So there was definitely a, a, a crazy soul attraction from the second our eyes met, mm. if that makes any sense. And mm. then he realised that I was with the client. He knew how the club worked. So after probably about an hour he sort of wandered past and brushed past. And as soon as we touched each other, it was just mad electricity. So I was really like, i got to talk to this guy. So it was the first time ever that I sort of backed out of the good thing after after I'd milked it a little bit. Chased the heart <laughs> instead of the pocket. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we got talking and then we ended up dating for about a year. And uh, we went to some really exciting things like uh, he had quite a high, <coughs> excuse me, social 
standing over there, being from the Board of Trade, and, um, and he took me to a few amazing balls and things like where they, the, muse, uh, the museum at, um, in Chicago, the massive big museum, they closed it all down and, and had a ball there. So we're dancing under dinosaur bones and things, you know, and it's, it was just incredible. It was just like this elite society and I hadn't really experienced stuff like that. And his, he had some really cool friends that were extremely wealthy and we'd get to go away for like Labor Day weekend. I remember the weekend Lady died. died, you know, I was away having this kind of cool um, weekend where there was a big lake and big cigarette boats and mansions and, and all sorts of things. And I remember we were staying there that weekend. And uh, yeah, th those sort of moments uh, come back and forward into my mind. But Chicago, it reminds me of Gotham City. You know, when you're looking at a Batman movie yeah. and everything's that solid and old and yeah. it's not creepy in Chicago, but there's so much it's old money that yeah. it's re everything is state-of-the-art. Oh, mm. I mean, not every, I mean, they've definitely got their um, black areas like Cabrini Green and all of that sort of stuff, but I'm just talking about the probably the heart and soul of Chicago. Mm. And um, So how long were you with, with him for? Probably 12 months to 14 months while I was in America. Mm. And then... I left to come home and he and you, was you weren't gonna, pregnant at this stage? No, 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 no. He was going to join me. You know, he'd been saying how much he wanted to come and live in Australia and change everything around and come and live, loved me and wanted to come and live with me. But when I actually left, he said he would be over here in three weeks and it took him three months to get here. So by the time, it was nearly Christmas time by the time he arrived and I felt no connection when he got off the plane. It was strange, but there was something different going on. So I guess for about six weeks, we were, he was either trying hard to avoid me or we were just trying hard to maybe get it to work again after, mm, and I wasn't really trusting anything. And it turns out in, you know, down the track, I found out that as soon as I left America, he'd gone, he'd gotten together with someone else. Someone else, yeah. So he'd been with someone else for three months. That's why he wasn't in a hurry to come out here. And I wish that he just had been honest about that because yeah. then probably I wouldn't have ended up in the position. I, but then again, I've got to turn around and say that I really want Hunter and love Hunter in my life and mm. I wouldn't have him if this isn't, didn't happen. So anyway, it got to be my birthday, which was March the following year. <clears throat> and everyone needs a root on their birthday. <laughs> yes, you do. So I guess uh, I'd been at work and he'd been not working and he managed to find my alcohol cupboard that had a, even a bottle of ouzo from when I was in jail in Greece, which is another story, um, that we were saving for the girls to have a reunion in, you know, 10 years' time and we were all going to drink this bottle, to, not this one, but we all took our own one. To, it's a kind of a long story. Anyway, he drank every drop of everything that was in that cupboard and he was passed out face down on the couch when I walked in the back door with two halves of a lobster which were, looked like a king prawn because they were the smallest ones I'd ever seen, burnt to a crisp under the griller with smoke. I was lucky he hadn't burnt the house on fire. Um, and that was supposed to my, be my big birthday dinner. So 
I just basically looked at him and thought, fuck you, and went to bed. And of course, he wakes up with a hangover and a hard on at three o'clock in the morning and I'm half asleep. And all I could think about in my head was, oh God, okay, it's a birthday route, I guess, and joke. <laughs> and get, and I was reaching for the condoms. We broke eight, this new packet, broke eight condoms. So I guess Hunter was supposed to happen. Wow. Because I got pregnant on, on my birthday. And um, yeah, so then Alton um, didn't like it when I said I was pregnant because he was a lot younger than me and probably like 10 years younger than me. Mm. And he said, I'm just not ready for kids. And um, so I said, well, actually I was four months pregnant before I found out I was pregnant. So uh, got pregnant on my birthday. It was March, April, May, June, July. Yeah, July about before I realised I was even pregnant. I thought I had Giardia because I was crawling <laughs> around the house throwing up and I was living in Narrabeen in Sydney and there was a Giardia outbreak there yeah. in the water supply. So I had a really funny Greek doctor back then and I remember ringing temp Temmie's office and booking in and like, can you do a house call? Because I'm saying, oh, no, we're not doing that. So I crawled down to the doctor's office and he was worried sick when he looked at me because I was just green and throwing up and it was just, and he goes, oh my God, I've never seen it. Quick, we better get a blood test. And it's this Giardia parasite and all of this. And then the next day I got a phone call, come down urgently. And I walked into his office and he had this piece of paper in his hand waving it and he goes, parasite all right it's a human one and I went what and he goes you're over four months pregnant and I went couldn't be I've been having my period the whole time and he goes oh god get around for an ultrasound so we went for an ultrasound and uh so you've had, been having a period every month during yeah, the pregnancy yeah wow but that was because I'd miscarried a twin so Hunter oh. was still in my womb. So we went around for the ultrasound. There's Hunter here in his little sack and here's an empty sack. Oh. So they weren't identical or they'd be in the same sack, yeah? yeah? But they were zygote twins. Um, so I lost one of the twins. And apparently your body goes into only letting that, um, like, miscarried one out the same time as your cycle. Wow. And I had some spotting, some crazy spotting in around April or whatever. You know, like it just wasn't, um, it, it just was this one in a million thing that yeah. happened. And I ended up, um, I ended up with Hunter, yeah, and no, no other baby. But it kind of worked out. I'm not, you know, I was a bit sad that I didn't have the opportunity. I would have loved twins. Mm. Like that would have been cool as. But... At the same time, with me ending up as a single mother, it ended up being a bit of a godsend in a way. You know, like I don't know how to explain that. Yeah. But yeah. And how does how does Hunter how does Hunter like wh when did Hunter know about I suppose your past? Has have you always been open and honest Very, with him about it? Yeah. Always. Yeah. I never lie to him. I've never lied to him in yeah. his life, yeah. and I never will. And um. And has I, he spoken to you about it? Like actually expressed his thoughts and feelings and and you know, the way he's processed it, has he expressed that at all? Uh, I guess a little. I, I guess I probably don't really go there. It, if there's a problem, yep. we'll address it. But yep. he's never brought it up to me okay. as a problem because he's cool with everything. Yeah. You know, I have some pretty amazing friends too yep. in my life and yep. Hunter's met all of them, mm. you know, and from every walk of life. 
they've all met him and he he's always been able to have good conversation like I used to joke because as a uh, I'd go to parties or whatever and I and I'd always have my eye on him but if I didn't have my eye on him for two minutes he'd be in the kitchen talking to a couple of adults holding court mm. like and I'd think to myself, there's a song called You'll Always Find Him in the Kitchen at Parties. Well, that was Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> now, speak, speaking of parties, being a penthouse pet, yep. um, being a, a, an exotic dancer, you've gone to some parties. Yes, huge. And you've met some people. Yep, and all across all, the board. All, all around the place. Yeah. But first of all, before we get into party, I'm sure it had to be a party that led to the jailing in, in Greece. There, there must have been a party. Oh, that was dancing. Okay. Uh, yeah. Let, that, so I'm table dancing. I've table danced all over the world. But uh, first of all, the the wrestling and stuff. I guess I guess I should probably go through a bit chronologically how this happened. So it starts off as uh, modelling in Sydney that ends up. Um, sort of getting me to go over to America to, to model. So I'd, I'd gone, I was with, um, I ended up working, I ended up modelling for Chadwick's and then having a massive car accident when I was 19 and a half. Mm. And I went through a windscreen and had 200 stitches in my face. Poof. So I walk into Chadwick's two weeks later to tell them I need some time off. And in his... <laughs> and, and in his I, need, I need a few weeks off just yeah, to fix this up. And in his gay wisdom... Good old Peter Chadwick's looked at me and said, oh, nice legs, shame about the face. <coughs> Took me off the books. Yeah. So then a couple of years later, my face had healed up and, um, you know, I, I don't know, people were still asking me to do a bit of modelling work, but not, it wasn't Chadwick's, it was through, for friends who, I don't know, had a ladder mate or something and they needed to have a catalogue or something. So I was doing a little bit here and there. And then... Um, Wayne Wiggum, who was a first grade footballer for Balmain uh, Rugby League. I'd been a friend of his since I was about 16. Yeah, I met Wayne a few months ago. Yeah, yeah. So he um, knew Tracy Wallace, who was Pet of the Year 1980, I believe. I think it was 1980. She was Pet of the Year. She ended up marrying the singer from Dire Straits. So there's all this world of pet penthouse pets and rock stars and all well, they sort of get, they go to together don't up, they? yeah well just starting yeah. to open up in my head that this was a reality yeah and wayne showed tracy some modeling shots of me and tracy was like god we and i had you know really long hair down to my butt and um this was a, it was a beautiful photo on the beach and and everything and tracy was like will she do penthouse and wayne said i'm sure because she can't model for Chadwick's anymore. So, you know, if you guys will ha have a modelling for her, I'm sure she will. Is and this before the, the table dancing? Yeah. Okay. So this is, um, so then I ended up uh, going in to meet the people at Penthouse and I remember Sue Smith was the name of the lady that used to get the girls organised for the centrefolds and whatnot. And Andrew Cow was the, uh, the editor so I went and met them and they were just like, yep, you're in. We'll go and get some test shots, but just looking at you, perfect. So I went and had the test shots done. And then, oh, in between, sorry, I'd had all my hair cut off after Wayne had showed them the photos. So they were like, oh, oh, my God, where's your long hair? You know, it was just one of those things back in that day. And that, but they ended up going, no, that's cool that you've got, short hair now you actually look like olivia newton john used to in 
that physical time. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they decided to theme my shoot around that. And uh, I think they tricked a few people into thinking that maybe Olivia Newton-John was in a penthouse centerfold <laughs> because of the front cover of the yeah. way it was. If you glanced at it quickly, you had to do a double take because they had me with the headband. Yeah. Very embarrassing, that, those photos out of that particular well, centerfold. Well, it was the 80s, wasn't it? And so I did those photos in March 83 and they all came out. It was July 1983 was the first edition of Penthouse that I ever did. And then I did uh, another one. I went off to America then and tried to get some modelling in America. And that was interesting because I ended up in a couple of predatory kind of moments there mm. where a couple of directors and things. And like I'm driving, I had a little tiny Honda to drive over there. And when you're on a freeway in a Honda with all the Cadillacs, you're kind of running the gauntlet. And I'd driven up to this house in Be Beverly Hills for an interview, big gates and all this sort of stuff. And I went in, the guy looked like David Niven on a bad day in a, um, in a robe and slippers when I opened the door. And I thought, this is all a bit creepy. And then he told me that I needed to do the interview for the movie In the Hot Tub. Oh. I was just like- This I'm is the start of the whole Me Too thing, isn't it? Yeah, really, like, like that. Like it was just creepy. So I was like, um, what's the movie about? A talking koala or something? He said, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I got so creeped out just stepping into the place. I, I was like, I, I don't have my bathing suit for the spa. That's what I said. He would have gone, that's okay. Exactly, David. <laughs> You've got the lines down. That's okay. Come on in. Look, look. if it makes you feel more comfortable. So oh. I just turned around and ran back to my little Honda and started driving out of there. And as I was driving out of there, the gate started closing. And it was like another movie moment in my life where I felt like... We just got through these gates in this tiny little car. Thank God I didn't have a Cadillac or I wouldn't have been going anywhere. But, you know, those are, these are these moments. I sort of get out of this situation and I'm like, oh, and it's almost like how close was that to mm. me being in a very awkward situation? Wow. But, thank you know, this is this 10% of caution that I have going on with myself that I speak about to people and I just go, don't know where it comes from, but it's a bit... Um, I'm not self-injurious, even though I've had all this abuse and everything else. I have like a limit on my self-injury mm. where, yeah, I love my tattoos and I love to bleed because I think it's very healing and I go into this really healing, cathartic space and these things really help me mm. in, um, I guess, my soul's desperation is what I want to call those moments because your soul remembers everything. Have you ever been self-injurious at all like have you ever had thoughts because of the shit that's happened in your life have you ever had thoughts of self-harming or just walking um, away from everything i think i've got the answer to that is that i've got a pretty high iq like even though i have I, I haven't really explored that i've 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 not pushed it but i've made openings for my son so he's now able to go to university I would have been a great university candidate. I, mm. you know, I was, I mean, when I was at school, they wanted me to go to vocational guidance and go to this special school for smart kids. And my mother said, no, it'll give you a big head. You know, how do you work that out? Pull so pull your head in, kid. I have never been 
my parents never let it happen for me. I think my mum was a Scorpio. There was a certain amount of weird jealousy went on with her. I don't know how to explain it. But I was the third child that she didn't want. So I, from the second I was in her womb, I was um, going to be the third wheel. Mum had OCD and she had her pigeon pair, my brother and sister, and they were only three years apart. And I sort of came along eight years after my sister in a moment of, I think mum and dad had had a lot of um, angst with their parents. Maybe mum's mother died or something like that. So dad's mm. way of consoling her was obviously cuddle and that led to sex or whatever. And I don't think they'd had any in a while. Mm. And then I, um, I came of that. And my dad was really, I remember my dad being really proud of me and really proud that he could have a child. I didn't think, maybe in his head, he didn't think he could have any more or he wasn't manly enough or mm. God knows. But <clears throat> dad had a big background with um, depression because he'd run away when he was 14 to join the Navy. And he was fighting in Indonesia on the HMS Gascoigne, um, pretty much jumping onto islands, bayoneting Japanese to death and being in conflict and all this sort of stuff and he's 14 you know mm. like what does that do to you how, how the hell did he get into the army at 14 a navy a navy uh i've looked it up on computer his father signed him in wow like how heavy is that yeah i've got a son when he was 14 he was still a child mm. you know like even though he was mature enough on some level mm. there's such a child there in a 14 year old Absolutely, yeah and, um, Imagine how much that must that must have fucked with his head. You gotta know. You gotta know. My dad. I saw him sitting. You know, my mum. We were living in the western suburbs of Sydney at that stage. We. I was born in like when we were living in Leichhardt, mm. and then we moved out to Tilopia, and where dad was able to build this house. Uh, we had a block of land three blocks back from the front of the beach at um, Harbort. <clears throat> Apparently, the family owned that, and dad sold it to build a package deal that he didn't have to think anything more about. You know, mm. apparently Harbord was going to be something that was continually expensive. Dad, in his depression, if you know what I mean, he mm. made some really different choices. Well, he must have been suffering a, Shocking a depression. PTSD for sure. Yeah, yeah, really bad PTSD. And so you didn't notice that, but he was a big drinker. Yeah. Um, which is why I rarely drink these days. Yeah. I love a good wine with my dinner. But you or, used to drink. I used to drink and get smashed yeah. when I was on, you know, party I and remember. all that. Yeah, God, I'd drink and be as rowdy as all yeah. buggery. Yeah. You but, actually, I remember you physically and emotionally changing as a person once you got drinks. That's, and that's the, the alter ego mm. that my gay friend from Ballarat, Brad, calls Rose Cunthead. That's what he gives her the name. And so we talk in code and we call her Conthead when we're talking just in general when there's other people around. Yeah. But he calls her Rose Cunthead and he said she gets you out of some of the weirdest situations mm. when you're as rowdy as all fuck mm. and you have no recollection. And knowing that about myself, when I had my son, I stopped drinking. Mm. So... I stopped drinking for a very long time and now I, I'll have a bloody good red with a good piece of steak, two glasses, and that'll do me. I'm just not a drinker. It's like bad medicine for mm. me. Yeah. Speaking of... <laughs> oh, bad medicine. Speaking of bad medicine, wow. <laughs> what a segue that is. Bad oh medicine. Oh, my God. It the wasn't old, meant to be a segue. I know. That cracks me up because... 
Bad Medicine, actually, you know what? Bad Medicine was a song that I remember vividly that Terry Bowie, who was in the Penthouse Pet Show, used in, oh, and I, you guys no, did. it was me. I did The Naughty Nurse. Was it you that yeah. used it? Oh, get out. Yeah. So it was Bad Medicine was, it was with me running on stage. Yeah, and but then Terry, to, did the other girls come out with you or was it just no, you? No, they used it later on for, yes, a, for later a duo on. or something, but I used it for my And you'd my get solo. a guy up on stage. And, and wrap his head up in the bandage so yeah, he couldn't see right. and pretend and to take his temperature rectally yes, and all sorts of Yes, that's right, all of sorts of crazy stuff. Crazy little nursey things. But that song... Sung by Bon Jovi. John Bon Jovi. And we, we spoke briefly a little bit ago about the penthouse pets and rock stars. Oh, yeah. And don't they love their they penthouse love, pets? They love them. And Bon Jovi, the band, yeah. back in the day when there was Richie and David and John and Alex, John Such and Tico. They're the five that mm. were in that band when I first originally met them. And uh, I guess I was... I was using Bad Medicine for my first song in my solo for a long, long time. And, and this is an, another thing, like being on the pe pe in the penthouse show, because um, I, I guess I didn't get to that, did I really? I um, ended up going to America, doing all that stuff, doing um, wrestling and foxy boxing and t learning to table dance and all of that. C ended up coming back to Australia and... Uh, Terry Bowie was getting the penthouse pet show together and the pet party show and she said want to come and see how you go so I was like yep joined the pet show and we started going on the road and then Patrick Pennegrast who is um, his family owned New Breed Security they were our security on our Victorian parts of the tour and Paddy was just this big, strong, um, but really gentle, gorgeous man. And instantly I felt like I had a soul brother. Patrick and I have just got on so well from the second we met each other. And he really used to look after us and care for us. And then he ended up <clears throat> doing security with Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi loved Patrick and they just took him. So they said, new breed, even your family business can't have you, you're gonna be our head of security and you're gonna travel with us forevermore. And so Patrick was just then with Bon Jovi. And then as it turned out, he went from being security to their tour manager after a couple of years. Well, when he was still doing their security and the Siebel townhouse in Sydney still existed and it didn't- Where, Weren't it, you living at the Siebel? Was no, it no, 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 we weren't living there. We just yeah. used to practically live there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, they were staying at the Siebel and John um, had asked Patrick, he just said, oh, I'd, I'd really like someone to come and dance for me. Like, I don't, I just like visuals. Of course you <laughs> I just want visuals. But I can't, you know, I can't go to a strip club because I'm too famous yeah. to walk in there and everyone knows about it. And Patrick goes, oh, I'm best friends with all the penthouse pets. Well, <laughs> they nearly died and they were just like, can you organise us something? And Patrick gets on the phone to me and he knew that I did the pet show. But when we were off tour, I would do party gramps. I'd go around to people's places at the 21st and do a stripper gram. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so anyway, Patrick called me and he said, oh, Suze, I'm just wondering, can you do one of your stripper grams? And I went, 
oh, yeah, what sort of a party is it, a bark sign? He goes, no, 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 no. It's just for one person. And I went, oh, Patrick, that's a bit creepy. <laughs> Doing a dance for one person. And he goes, oh, just that they've got a bit of high profile and they can't really um, go out to like a strip club or that. And since you've done Penthouse, I thought you were a bit of the top of the pile with it all. Would you mind coming? And, do and I went, oh, God, all right. And he goes, it's at the Siebel. We, I can meet you down in the lobby. And, and I said, when do you want this? And he goes, oh, as soon as possible. So I went, oh, no, I'll be there in two hours, I guess, because I lived up at Avalon on the northern beaches in Sydney. And uh, anyway, I said, what outfit does he want? The nurse, the copper, the this, the that. I just did all my whole repertoire to him. And he goes, oh, I don't know. He says, I don't know if you'll understand the schoolgirl because they don't really have uniforms in America. And he said, and the cop uniform probably won't, you haven't got an American cop uniform. And I said, no. And he goes, do something else that he won't be confused what it is. And I went, the nurse. I, mean, I didn't even say that to Patrick. I just thought in my head, I'll do the naughty nurse. Perfect. So, because I have no idea who this person is at this stage. So, pack my tape. Oh, back then we used cassettes to yeah. put into a cassette player. <laughs> Showing my age now. Golly. Um Geez, it would have been so convenient now just to press your phone and be able to do yep, your solo. Yeah, use your phone. Stick a little have, have the uh, Bluetooth speaker. How good would that be? That would have been so simple. The kids have got it made yeah, these days. The production we had to do back then. <laughs> anyway, so I burn off into the Seville townhouse, meet Patrick in the lobby, and he takes me right up to the you know the big penthouse suite at the top, which I'd been in once or twice before because I'd known Sting in younger days. Anyway, that's another story. But anyway, I've gone up to the room and uh, and um, Patrick puts me in this bathroom that's as big as a house basically, and I'm getting ready and just putting my bits and pieces on. And then and I, he said to me, just let me know when you're ready. And so I've gone, Patty, I'm ready. Here's my tape. And he didn't tell you who it was? No. Here's a tape to put on out in the tape player that's out in the lounge of the yeah. big penthouse. And he goes, do you want me to crank it? And I went, bloody oath. Don't do it any other way, mate. Yeah. You know, and, he, and anyway, started. I'm in my naughty nurse outfit with a bit of my comedy stuff on because I still, doesn't matter who it is, I'm comfortable to do the routine that I've got in my yeah. head so the music starts it's bad medicine starting off as loud as you get it and I come running out of the room and there's fucking John Bon Jovi sitting on the couch in a tight pair of Calvins and a white t-shirt looking like a goddamn damn Calvin Klein commercial like he looked so gorgeous just sitting there and I came flying out and just Stopped and I went, oh, how embarrassing. Would you like me to change the music? <laughs> and he sat back and I could already see that he was starting to get a bit tight in his jeans and he went, darling, keep going. I've been waiting for this all my life. <laughs> and he just sat back like a pig in shit watching me strip to bad medicine right wow. three inches, you know, like his face. And... Oh, there was other songs on there. I think it goes to Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood and then it went to um, Bad Case of Loving You or something like that. You know, like, I don't know. There was a few songs on there. But, um, yeah, talk about hot and steamy and the most personal bloody dance I've ever done in my life. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that that sort of began. Oh, it began a, a madness, a long-standing friendship. Yeah. I've been. Um, I mean, they just flew me to Sydney what a year ago to um, be front and for, front and foremost at the put me up the Shangri La. Um, you know, just kind of for, front and foremost at the stage thirty year anniversary mm. of knowing them. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So kind of cool. But, and that, was that the only time you danced for him? Uh, the dance for him. You know, like in that personal space, yes, yeah. but party with them continually and got, and they ended up meeting all the penthouse pets. I mean, it was a couple of years later than that when I first met them and they were touring again and they had my phone number. And so I used to talk to them and stuff. Like, yeah, it was kind of cool. It was, mm. I became their, their friend and so was Patrick. And so Patrick was then like my brother, if you know what I mean. And, um, uh, it just became a tight knit. Like I became it part somehow in this Bon Jovi extended family, mm. and everyone was saying he was the most married man in in America. And so I'm not on this earth to try and get John Bon Jovi to be my boyfriend or my partner. But if there's some fun to be had, man, I'm in it. You know what I mean? Mm. It's like I'm no home wrecker, but I really I know how to have fun, and I know how to make everyone around me get in a really good party mood rather than, you know, think about any troubles at all. We're just, we're, and it, there's nothing untoward about it. You know what I mean? It's it's fun. If it st stops being fun, it's finished. And that's how it goes. And, and you briefly mentioned Sting before, and like we're, we're sitting in your lounge room at the moment and you just brought up some old memories for me and showed me some of your old photos. And um, one of them is this, um, it's a new, what is it? The new weekly from back in 1996. And there was an actual, there's an article in there. Yes. And it, it's titled, My Fling with Sting. <laughs> yeah. And it's got Sting in some weird yeah. yoga pose with his leg up in the air. Yeah, because he's into tantric sex. Yeah. <laughs> and was he? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, it was, that was amazing because that was actually the pet of, I met sting at the pet of the year party when i did my pen when you do a penthouse centerfold they have a massive party. they have a massive party at the end of the year and they actually that's have they, the that's pet where, of the year votes yes, go for right. about three months in the yeah. magazine and then so anyway yeah 83 i did that first centerfold and um i was really good friends with um this lady vicky that used to work on the desk and that in there and she was a great mate of mine and uh well, we, we became great mates and then Sue Smith was pretty good and I knew Andrew Cow really well and that became my penthouse family. I don't know how to explain that, mm. but that's kind of what they make you feel really comfortable and anything you need. And you do your centrefold and then you do a, like a year of promotions for them. Mm. So you're out at the Bathurst 100 and you're here and there and you're meeting all sorts of famous people in all sorts of amazing situations. There was too many for me to even, you know, think of, let mm. alone rattle them rattle them all off but uh the pet of the year party it's uh, uh, about a week before and vicky rings me and she goes you've won and i went shut up don't say shit like that that's not how it works i don't want to know any anything she's going i'm the one counting the votes man and i'm telling you you've won and i was just like no 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 anyway turns out that andrew cow was having an affair with donna turner who was the pet of the month for september yep i remember donna she was in the show for a little while no no she that was donna from new zealand different donna, oh, different donna. donna. yeah this one donna 
Uh, oh, not sorry, Donna. Um, Donna Turner. You've met, yeah. No, it's I, I can't remember There's this a lot Donna's of Donna's. name. I remember yeah. a few Donnas. I can't remember this Donna's name now. Sorry. Anyway, this Donna won the Pet of the Year mm. at the Pet of the Year party, and Sting and everyone had come to watch the party. And in a weird way, I had my really short hair, and a lot of people said. Oh, you and Sting look like twins. I or was something. just I was just thinking that looking at this photo right now that you guys actually look a bit alike. Look a bit in some alike, yeah. Way. yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, I'm on stage getting, you know, runner up or whatever the bloody hell it was. And Doug Mulray was on Triple M at the time. Yep. Uncle Doug. And he was sitting with the surfer Mark Warren, who yep. I'd also dated years before. So I knew Mark really well. And um, Doug was screaming out at the top of his voice, what a rip-off, Miss July should have won, you know, and all of this, and I'm dying, you know, <laughs> sorry, and I'm dying and going, oh, what the hell, this is the craziest night, but I was pissed off because I'd been told I was going to win and I didn't want to believe it and then I knew I shouldn't have even thought, had that thought even in my head that I might have, you yeah. know, kind of crazy. Um, so I ended up going back to my room a bit pissed off and thinking I'll have a drink and, you know, um, got up back up to my room and Doug and Mark came with me and they were like, you should have won, this is the biggest rip-off we've ever witnessed and they were hugging me and kissing me and Doug had just bought a new Jaguar and he goes, I know how we'll um, change your mood. Come and I'll take you for a drive in the new car. So we got in his Jag and we went flying from the Siebel over the Harbour Bridge at about 300 miles an hour in this Jag, turned around in North Sydney, came back and, you know, I was pretty much in a better mood by then. <laughs> <laughs> and then they said their goodbye, got me back to the room, said my goodbyes. And Doug goes, I'm going to be all over the radio at six in the morning about this. And I went, no, 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 just leave it out. It's all good. And he goes, that's the biggest fucking ripoff I've ever witnessed. Anyway, as it goes, I'm back in the room. It's probably uh, one or something in the morning by about this stage. And there's a little knock at the door. And I open the door and there's Sting standing there with a bottle of Cointreau. And I actually said... Sorry, darling, I'm not in the mood. I've just lost the pet of the year. I'm depressed and I really don't, I'm not going to be good company. And he went, are you kidding? Can't I cheer you up? And I went, no, nah, seriously, I really can't. And he, and he just looked at me like, I don't know if that had ever happened to him before, but I really was in a really bad state. Yeah, so I just shut the door in his face and that was that. Anyway, there's 500 messages come through I had to sleep there's you know when the light used to flash on the phone oh, yeah, in, the, yeah, yeah. in the hotel room when there was about 500 messages from Sting saying do you want to come to the show and do you want to do this and you want to do that so that night I got to stand first time ever in my life at a rock show where it there was you know over 10,000 people in the crowd and first time I ever experienced to have that kind of level of excitement and noise and everything go through your body because when you're on stage that's what happens mm. that whole crowd just comes at you and I was just, and that was like I guess where I was christened a bit into rock and roll if you know what I mean <laughs> and um anyway then they were touring all around Australia so he flew me around Australia a bit I, I, well the, I had to do even though Donna won the pet of the year 
the next morning she was on TV. Doug Mulray was all over the radio going, Miss July, I should have won. Oh, it was terrible. And then Donna got up on... Gordon Elliott used to do the morning yeah, show Gordon on Elliott. Channel 10 yep. and he was a bit of a, 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 a scallywag and so he gets Donna on for a, a live interview and she's still in the same dress that she had on at the Pet of the Year party with all wine stains and probably semen stains all <laughs> down the front of it. <laughs> That's a bit of a dig, isn't it? Sorry. It is a bit of a dig. Anyway, hey, you know, um, anyway he's seen the state she's in because she's still half cut from the yeah. night before. And he goes, oh, that's a lovely dress you're wearing. Why don't you get up and give us a twirl? And she went into a half twirl and fell flat on her face. Andrew Cow was instantly sacked from Penthouse. Donna had a pet of the year touring privileges and promotions and everything taken off her. So they rang me and said, you, it, not the prizes, but you can have everything else. You do all the penthouse promotions and you do this and you do that. And, you know, it was pretty good money in that. So I said, yeah, all right, I'll take that on. And then I, they wanted me to run the um, promotion agency and, and that was another story that we started that up called Penthouse Promotions or something and uh, uh, did that for about 12 months trying to set everyone up that were other centrefolds, but trying to get Donna Burns to go to a a, a a signing or something like that was like almost impossible. So yeah, it was a, a crushing year of my life, but at the same time, again, met lots of people, had lots of crazy times. So you've, you've had this life, literally, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Yeah, that, pretty that's, much. That's been your life. Yeah, yeah? pretty much. And You've met amazing people, you've done amazing things, you've been around the world. At the end of the day, everyone is human and everyone is normal. And if you go in at a humble, respectful level, you'll get that back from almost anybody, anyone I've ever met in the world. Without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. What I want to ask is going from that insane lifestyle, yep. which most, and I say this in inverted commas, you know, normal people would look at that and just go, holy shit, that is mind-blowing. Well, most normal some of that people stuff. don't believe me. Yeah, they know wouldn't believe I mean? They wouldn't never believe, believe any and, story. And look, I can testify to it because I've known you for the last years. And you've been with years, me in half I've of been the story. And I've seen it all. Yeah. I've seen, and ha, how do you now, because you're approaching 60, and we had this conversation yeah. only a little while ago. You're, you know, you're 60 next year. Yeah. And not that I want to admit not that. Not that you want to admit that, but, you know, it, it's Oh, well, look, it's uh, can life, I just say it? one thing? I feel like maybe I'm 30 at the most. Yeah. These days I walk past the mirror and I look at it and I get a shocking fright because <laughs> I feel about 30 and I'm, I don't think I'm looking 60, but I'd be looking 50 and yep. I never thought that I, it just don't, doesn't match my soul. So how do you emotionally deal with that transition from this, you know, and because I know a lot of people who have been, I mean, the life you lived was yep. huge. Huge, and it was very egocentric. You know, yeah. e even though you might not have taken it that way, no. it was still. And a lot of people that live in that life live very egocentrically. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it's addicting to get. That, it is, but that's that energetic, attention. right? Yeah. And from the start, like I said, I'm Piscean. Yeah. I've been blessed with knowing about spirit. I'm not religious. Mm. I'm all about spirit. It's yep. the universe for me. Yep. And luckily. From a very young age, uh, my grandfather um, was someone who told me about Saint Germain. Yep. Do you know what I mean? And yep. and the and call on the 
you know, just the purple light for protection if you're ever in a bad moment. And, I, and that was when I was about eight he died. So it was a year after my abuse finished from my mm. brother. And, you know, I'm sure if Pop knew, he would have killed my brother. Mm. You know what I mean? But um, Pop died when I was eight. And just before he died, he just said, you, you know, you're the you're the old soul. You're the one that needs to know about this. And I, he didn't have the conversation with anyone else. So... I, you know, so I is know this is what is this? Has that helped you yeah, through that transition? Yeah, it's given me total balance. So even though I've had all my abuse, it kind of balanced. It, it gave me mm. the healing that I needed right then. Mm. And then as I've gotten on, because I'm part of the universe, it's like books fall out at my feet and different things. It's crazy. But mm. even I. I've avidly travelled. I've ne nearly been around the whole world and I've climbed the Himalaya mountains, you know, trekked to Jomson and from Pokhara and all this. And I was in Kathmandu, walk into a bookstore there where there's hundreds of books written in languages from all over the world. And I'd lost the quest of the warrior woman that I lost that I got at the Bridge of Life. I'd given it to someone to read or whatever and then and they misplaced it. That book fell out of the shelf again at my feet when I walked in to that shop in, in mm. Kathmandu. Or it didn't fall out, but it's, it's, that was the one, you know, like it just basically just, it, it just was there on the thing and it just sort of made itself known. I think it fell, fell sideways or something like that. Didn't actually like fly out at my feet again like the one did at the bridge. But the guy in the shop, the guy in the shop, I was looking at something else and the guy in the shop was like, no, you need, you probably need to look at this book. And that was that exactly the same book. Wow. So there's weird, I've had these little weird moments in my life, but in very auspicious places. Mm. So where there's really clear energy or if I'm really clear on something, mm. which has balanced me up from this other world of sex, drugs and rock and roll. Mm. That's as peaceful and and as good as it gets. Do you, ever, do you ever think about the old days, the good old days, if you like, and, and go, fuck, I wish they could still be there? Or are you glad you've had them and you're glad you're where you are? Oh, I'm really, really glad I had them. Gosh, yeah. I wouldn't change. Even though there's been, like I say, I'm a one in a million for good stuff and I'm a one in a million for crazy, bad stuff. Yeah. I wouldn't change it. It's been a real roller coaster. Mm. Um, but I think if my life had been any different, I would have been bored. Because being this Piscean that's mutable, I need to be able, and like even my day in the birthday book, I'm the day of the space voyager. <laughs> so a lot of people go, does that mean you're a space cadet? And I go, no, it talks of, that's about the space around you, your spatial voyager. You're yeah. not, I'm not voyaging off into outer space, yeah. but I probably have had some time in the Pleiades or something in another <laughs> life. But um, it, you know, it just says about I'm needing to keep this interesting thing happening yeah. and I'm mutable and I've got to keep moving and I've allowed myself not to get trapped or whatever. Mm. You know, like I was married for eight months. I, that was the biggest trap of my life ever. And uh, when that all finished up, even though there's times I'd really love, I think to myself, I'd really love to have a partner. I have so many really close friends that mm. I have a really good soul connection with. I wouldn't have that if I had a partner. So... Yeah, I, I don't know. I look back and I go, no, I wouldn't change a minute of any of my life. Even people go, would you change the abuse? Of course you would. But yeah, for some abuse, reason, yeah. if I'm, 
believing in my universal beliefs that we make a choice of our soul coming in to go through something to get to the, you know, to alchemise your soul, I guess, is what I feel that you come to earth for. Mm. Um, that I've done a damn good job of that. And I've explored and I've definitely been a space voyager, so I've gone along with who I'm supposed to be, I guess. And, and now the space that you've entered in the last few years at least is sort of in the same vein of the sex, drugs and rock and roll. You've gone into owning your own brothel. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, um, it's so different to the worlds that I've been in. Mm. Um, having uh, one thing I didn't mention either was when I first left school, I went my... Um, my profession while I was doing all my centrefolds and everything else was psych nursing. Yes. So I actually became a registered psychiatric yes. nurse. Yes. I used to tell me some crazy oh, stories man. about like that. Like I've seen it all. P bottom line is that's the other side of me. I'm really responsible for other people's lives. You know, yeah. I'm like I'm like Thunderbirds, um, international rescue. I, <laughs> I always intervene if someone's hurting themselves or someone else. Yeah. I can't not do that. And so being a psych nurse, so the good thing about all of that was I did pharmacology. So you learn about every single drug, which then, you know, for this sex, drugs and rock and roll world, I'm not an addict and I haven't been really affected by anything. I've had a touch of, I've, I've tried everything mm. in my life except for injecting. I just don't, you know, I just, I've a bit of needle phobia, I can give them. But I don't like getting them. <laughs> Make me a psychopath? Um, no. But, yeah, just that whole thing, you know, not for me. I'm not in that, I'm not into the rituals. I understand people need rituals in their life. I've mm. got no judgment on it. I find it hideously self-injurious. But a lot of people need to have that deep calm because they're so tortured or yeah. their souls are so tortured. So I don't have a judgment on it. And I think that makes you a good psych nurse mm. if you absolutely have no judgment on anything and you just take everything for what it is and you do your best to get that person to improve on the situation they've presented you with. And if does you that, can get minuscule even improvement in that, you've done a job. And does that make you a good madam now? Yes, because not, not just because of pharmacology, but um, psych nursing does because it helps i don't even know if i want to say i'm a good madam what's a good madam like i've owned the brothel during the, what i call is the ice age so mm. unfortunately i've seen a lot of very beautiful young women get caught up with that outside of my business because i don't allow that in the business which a lot of people go she's crazy to th that, that she can think she can run that place without allowing that because there's a lot of other brothels in the world that feed people drugs to keep them as keep, an employee, mm. you know, like keep them there. All of that stuff for me is really hideous and the reason that I took this on in the first place is because I just want to have a clean, safe environment for women who are sexy, because there's just some women, there's 10% of women that are born to be what I call, it's like a Magdalene energy, you know, and that they, um, they've they got something in their body, it's like this sacred sexual knowledge and you just seem to know it. Mm. It just comes from within. And I've felt that I've known that, you know, or I don't know, maybe not, 
uh, uh, sounding facetious. I'm no guru. And I'm and if some spiritual person's listening to me that's into sacred sex, they would be going, God, a brothel is so far removed from that. But the bottom line is, is that these guys are not having any connection even on a soul level, that it, they're very needy of a even yeah. touch in this world where there's so much computer stuff and everything that goes on. No one's touching anyone anymore, you mm. know. And it's almost like that. there's this really great service that the girls that do work for me are doing. And we have a lot of disabled guys. We have Down syndrome guys. We have um, people who are blind, um, wheelchair, uh, cerebral palsy. You know, like there's a lot of people out there that That's find it really difficult to have any kind of connection but they're male and their bodies are full of testosterone. And testosterone is something that builds up and it builds keeps, up. Can you, you get rid of it and it comes back, it keeps, it keeps it, flowing. It's something that's yeah. like eating and drinking yeah. in this world. I really believe, and like in this coronavirus times and the brothel's shut down, so I'm not an owner of a brothel at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the owner of nothing. So um, I wish that, you know, that, and I, I'm not, opening the place because yeah i don't want everyone to be coming down on us like we're trying to do something um to you know make COVID available or whatever no but um all the phone calls on the answering machine there are from you know the parents of the down syndrome guy or when the, are you opening up again uh, yeah we're really getting to the point that he's getting aggressive at home now wow. you know um so it's actually my heart goes out to that if you get what I'm saying, and yeah. I and we are providing a service. And yeah, there's a disgruntled guy with his wife. He comes in and has a service. That marriage is saved. Mm. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, yeah. um, or you get, and we don't get a lot of husbands in there. That's not what I'm saying, you know. But then you get a lot of guys in Australia that are single workers, fly in, fly outers. And they don't have any time to meet women mm. and they really don't want to be in a relationship, but they need sex. Well, they don't, they don't want to sit at home and all their sick and are sitting at home Palmer and watching. And Palmer is only yeah, good for, a, for so long. For so long. You're not and getting it's that not a intimacy. connection. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And yes, the internet and yes, porno and yes, everything has just crazily turned sex lives, people's sex lives on their head. Like I had a, a period there of, Six, six months or something where every single guy under 30 was coming in asking for anal at the front door and I would just go whoa like where's this mad obsession coming mm, from it's not something porn. that people do all the time but these guys are sitting at home that's all they're seeing on porn for 24 hours mm. and these girls are acting on porn like that's all they want mm. and what are my um I mean, you know, like again I don't have a judgment on that but it's not something everyone does every minute and it's not a standard service of you, of, of you, if the money you're paying is not going to cut it for an anal session and all mm. of this. Like there's specialty people that do that. Like not all prostitutes would do anal service and things mm. like that, you know. So uh, trying to get that mes message to those guys, I felt like I was doing a bit of a healing service. Mm. I wasn't going cranky on them or anything. I was just sort of telling them to tone it down a bit and <laughs> get a bit real and, you know, I've got a lot of uh, gay friends and everything, and it's gay men, it's not what they do all the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's. Um, and what about the girls? Um, are you, like you said, you, you're in a lot of brothels around the world in Australia. There's a lot of girls that are 
on the ice and you oh, went through that ice. They've fed it by yeah. people who own the brothels, I guess. You know, I don't know that for a fact. I've heard it from people yeah. who will come to my place and tell me about their past experiences. I'm a list. I'm good. I might be a big talk talker. <laughs> you are a big talker. But I'm a good listener when it comes to people telling me soul stuff that they might need yeah. a help with. Yeah. A lot of women have come through the brothel like myself that have had uh, childhood sexual abuse. Mm. It does. As in the girls, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it does. Well, look, the do clients think- wouldn't talk to me about that. They have a whole different, you yeah. know, we just do a bit of, um, uh, you know, nice, friendly chit-chat. I, I don't get heavy conversation with them. But a few of the girls over time will hit, you know, maybe hear me speak about Heartfelt House or something yeah. like that and they'll have asked for pamphlets or yeah. whatever, just discreetly. You do you know? think that's part of the healing process or part like to actually go into sex working or stripping or something like that is part of the healing process or is it part of what happens it's a part just of it's actually of, i think a little bit of the self-injury yeah that comes off it but like i was saying before i've got i think my intelligence there's a level with people with intelligence and self-injury mm. and i think the more you damage your brain and you're becoming more, and I won't call it, you know, it's it's like a brain damage will happen. So your brain capacity is not as much and that's drinking, drugging, mm. all different things will happen. I try and not do that. You know, like I'm not, I, I, I don't know, I think I'm at some level with my intelligence stops me from being that self-injurious or, you know, instead of cutting myself, I'll go and get a beautiful tattoo. Yeah. Yeah, well that, well, that makes sense because I did a podcast um, called Commando Style with a guy who's uh, a former uh, Special Services, Special Forces Commando, right? Yes. I, did a, I did a podcast with him a few podcasts ago and we spoke about emotional intelligence and, and PTSD. Yes. And he was telling me that the PTSD amongst returned soldiers and things like that isn't as high as what everyone makes out there to be. And he said especially when you go to the more elite soldiers, like the commandos, the special forces guys. very smart. He said, exactly. And he they're said, not going to injure themselves to that level. And because they're more emotionally intelligent, yes. they know how to manage, manage the PTSD and, manage the PTSD, and which don't is, let it get to them. This is where I've come to in my life. I have mm. very rare occasions where I let my PTSD get to me. Mm. But I'd still dissociate. I still... You know, mm. I'm the, I know I've got mu- not multiple personalities that all come to the forefront, but there'd be two or three. Well, I was the same when um, I, I mentioned earlier that I went through the abuse as well, yep. and I went through a lot of a lot of therapy with that right up and right up through my forties. Right, I'm going through therapy. It's one of those things that sticks with you for a very long time and I was having bad dreams, nightmares, yes, same, all sorts of same, thoughts yeah. and you still have those thoughts. Yes. You, you, you don't escape them, you learn no, how to manage them. That's it. And I remember going to my psychologist for an extended period of time and he actually looked at me and he goes, I am blown away that you are as stable and well-adjusted as you are. He goes, someone that's gone through the abuse that you've gone through for such an extended period of time I'm amazed you haven't tried to kill yourself, that you're not an alcoholic. Or a heroin addict. Or a heroin addict. Or you're lying in a gutter somewhere. He goes, most people I know that I deal with that have gone through what you've gone through. Or be homeless at the moment. Yeah. He goes, so rest in the knowledge that you are doing amazing. Exactly. Give yourself a pat on the back, basically. And and then to have that backed up from this guy 
who's the commando to yes. understand, wow, that really makes sense. It's that true. You, you need yeah. to you need to get a handle on it. You need to understand it, not go into that poor me victim side be, of stuff. You've got to so get rid of the victim. Yeah. You've got to because it, it that'll cripple you for mm. the rest of your life emotionally yeah. Yeah. and physically you will become a physical cripple from that because yeah. emotional stuff affects your body so mm, much, absolutely. you know, and, you, and there'll be spots in your body that just won't be able to move on. There won't be any chi happening there because mm. that's just shut down. And these are the things that have kept me sane, healthy, you know, and, uh, I, you know, I've got probably different times in my life I've had people go, God, she's crazy as a loon. And then other times, <laughs> wow, you know, you're the best chick I've ever met. But that's because I manage myself in situations. If someone's acting really scary to me, then I'm going to go crazy as a loon because mm. that's my protection mm. because they're going to think, fuck, she's crazier than I am. I'm not going there. That's my protection. Does yeah. that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. without a doubt. So um, oh, I guess I've got a voice as well that um, since my brother, it sounds weird, but w before I the end of my abuse, when I was small, I was the abuse was all still happening, but my mum was big on paying me 20 cents to sing Edelweiss to visitors and stuff, shocking, you know, those horrible <laughs> mothers that try and be like a stage mother or whatever yeah. it was. Wasn't that from The Sound of Music, Edelweiss? Yeah. yeah. So anyway, apparently I had this amazing voice. And then um, my brother actually choked me to death when I was seven mm. and I remember... The one thing that I remember is from that day forth, my voice sounded a bit like Daffy Duck. And then years later, when I was, um, actually it was when I was uh, having my, I was having, I had a, bur and I, you know, I had my implants done and everything and then I had one of them burst inside me and then I was getting them replaced. And I remember when I came out of that operation, the anaesthetist was there and he was just angry at me and he said, I could hardly get you back. Where did you wander to? You know, like I was trying to get you back in your body. You shouldn't do that to people. Apparently it took them a really long time for me mm. to get me back into some sort of recovery or something. And I don't have a memory of where I went to, but I know that when you've got a really um, afflicted soul, you can be lost. You can be lost trying to find answers. You know, mm. maybe I was just off in some wandering thing. Like I'm really into Carlos Castaneda and dream, you know, walking and all this. And I really feel, if you're even induced into an unconscious state, you can um, kind of access these other vortexes well, or other well, planes. Isn't that, isn't that what all the um, medicinal plant healing is all about? All the ayahuasca exactly. and even, even the you know medicinal yeah. medicinal and like at one and point I did a mescal five day thing and did a mescal thing and for my totem animal and I had this black panther full on coming at me and stuff. You know I do know mm. there's energetically that's all real. You know I'm really into my body chi and everything, but I don't run around acting like I'm a guru and putting that on anyone else. That's all real just deep personal stuff of mine, but I'm happy to share the information if someone asks me about that particular subject. But how, I'm how sure you, not any expert on it. How have you been sharing all this stuff today? Like we've gone into some pretty full-on stuff. Yeah. How's that been for you? I find it really easy now. You yeah. know, like I've gotten over myself. Mm. Does that make... Yeah, I, I hope it makes... I keep saying, does that make sense? But often... 
nowadays I'm on my own a lot, mm. even though I have my business, I have whatever, I'm alone in my energy mm. because other people haven't explored what I have. Mm. And this is where I find it's also hard for me to find a partner mm. that will, um, and I won't put the words put up with me because I don't deserve that, but mm. who will... Um, understand. Understand me, but um, also kind of put the wind under my wings rather than cutting them because mm. there's a lot of people that get jealous that I've had a big life. If I start telling my stories, they don't believe it at first <laughs> and then they just get insanely jealous. Yeah. And uh, and i got to be careful because mm. I don't say my – I don't tell any of these stories or say any of this stuff to Skype. Mm. It's just been my life. Yeah. And, uh, and I guess it would be really good to find – a man that may be equally well-travelled or equally whatever. I just haven't come across it. I haven't put a lot of time into it. I don't know it. if you're going to find someone as equ equally well-explored um, as what you've been. I don't know. Yeah, see, <laughs> this is this crazy thing for me. And uh, so that's what makes me shut up a lot. See, yeah. this very being very open with all this. And then also owning a brothel. A lot of guys, they're very uncool with that. Mm. They're very uncool with prostitution. Mm. And um, a couple of dates I've been on since I've owned the brothel, the f within an hour they start starting their sentences with, you should. Mm. And I feel like saying you should have a little bit more life experience before you start your sentences with, you should. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been so good having a chat to you. It's been so good just talking about all this stuff, looking at all these old photos um, yeah, and, and just bringing back some memories and, you know, like as I said, I've known you for nearly 30 years. Yeah. And um, I've heard all these stories before, you know, and it's, it's amazing and a lot of them I've forgotten. I was That's like, exactly right. Well, I mean, the other, the other side to the coin is I've end, I was in a Greek prison, two different Greek prisons for because some guy embezzled money out of a, 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 an Austrian guy didn't pay the Greek lawyer who was supposed to. The Austrian guy couldn't speak Greek. I could speak it but not read it. And we all get flown over to Greece for this big dancing troupe thing. Um, they tell us, oh, your visas, they, they even manipulate us more. The visas aren't ready till Thursday. So you're really in this thing going, this is all legitimate, this is great. We went and sightseed. I was with Terry Bowie at the time. Went sightseeing all around Athens thinking, great, we've got four days of holiday before I actually have to start work. And I'm in the table dancing club, I had this massive Diana Dawes wig on and in this uh, beautiful evening dress and this Irish seaman had just come in with a massive roll of uh, American, you know, $200 bills or whatever and I'm thinking, beautiful, I might take that all off you by the end of the night but I'm going to make you feel real good while we're doing it. And we were just having this really great chatty moment and I was all smiles and I was just about to start my table dance. I get a gun to my head, my whole wig ripped off. This poor guy must have thought I was a drag queen or something, like looking at me having my wig ripped off and a gun in my head and I got dragged out. I actually thought I was getting taken away to the white slave trade. So they've thrown me in an unmarked car with no door handles in the back and this is, you know, at 10 at night so it's pitch dark and they're not speaking any English and I'm not speaking any Greek. And they're, every time I open my mouth and go, can you, what, what's happening like that? They just turn around and slap me. Like I've been 
in that such scary situations in my life I end up it they're taking us to immigration prison and um, we don't have visas for working in Greece so we didn't know any of this we just got totally set up and then I ended up in that prison for a week um, in court everything else and then they said oh you can leave prison and go back to the club but apparently they said you can leave prison but you have to go home but the guy the guy that owned the club said, oh, no, you leave prison, you can come back to work. So we went, he said, oh, we'll just go to another club up in, up in Thessaloniki, not in Athens. So we're like lambs to the slaughter. We have no clue because I'm not having a proper interpreter tell me anything because they're just putting anyone in who will say anything. They take us up to Thessaloniki where the second night of dancing there and the same thing happens. All the cops come in and raid us and... Um, young Liza was with me as well as Terry on that trip and she was just lost it. Her and I jumped out of the uh, dressing room window and we saw this car sitting there in the dark and we thought we'll hide in the car. So we got in the back seat and it was the police car. <laughs> <laughs> Could you even believe it? I can't believe it. <laughs> and then they took us to jail again and then we had to go through all this court again getting slapped, getting on. We actually went to this massive jail. There was uh, 40 women in an eight-person cell. So there were five benches in there and we all had to just crowd in on them. There was a hole in the ground as the toilet in the corner and there was just this tap with water dripping out of it and the food was just like, oh, my God, God, you know, just like moussakery mush just that you couldn't even recognise. And Terry didn't get arrested. So she was on the outside of the jail and Liza and I were in and they let her in to visit us, I think, like twice a week. I started smoking cigarettes in prison. I was like B. Smith in there trying to organise all the dancing How long were you girls. there for? Two weeks. Yeah. And then this guy walks past the jail. The, uh, every single person that walked past, didn't matter if they'd hit me or spit on me or whatever, I always had to ask them, did they speak English? I never gave up. And then this really handsome guy, looked a little bit like Jamie Drury. This guy walk, comes walking past and I went, do you speak English? And he goes, fuck yeah, what are you doing? Where are you from? And I went, Australia. And he goes, what are you doing here? And I went, if you tell me that, we'll both know. I went, where are you from? And he goes, from, uh, I was, oh, I'm from here, but I've been living in New York for like 10 years as a New York cop. And I thought I'd just get a job in the jail when I came home. And he goes, why are you even here? And I went, I don't know. Of course, we were dancing and someone embezzled money off someone and we didn't have visas and so they've thrown us in here. And he's gone, I'll be back in five minutes. And I'm hanging on to his arm going, this is the first person in two weeks that's human, you know. Um, I'm not, I don't want to let him go. He was like an angel. And he goes, no, I promise you faithfully I'll be back in five minutes. And he left and he came back with the eight passports in his hand of the eight girls that I was, you know, were, were in our travelling dance group thing that were part of this club. And he got us all out. And we were, like, not even believing that this was happening. And he hands us our passports and he said, just go home, get out. It's Friday afternoon here in Greece. Nothing happens. No one will know. Just get on a plane and get out of this country and you'll be free. And I could, like... It was like a, another scene from a movie. I'm walking out of this prison f free and I can't even believe it. And I got my bags. I had Terry organise to pick up the bags or something. 
I remember nearly getting killed one more time when I was going to the airport because I needed a bottle of water and I stopped at a little Greek that had these little stalls with all sorts of things. You can buy everything from a blow-up um, beach toy to a box of matches or whatever. They've got everything in these little stalls. And I stopped to get a bottle of water and a gypsy tried to grab my handbag, so I elbowed her in the head. And then 40 gypsies came out and tried to stab me while I'm at this <laughs> stall. And I just remember <laughs> running to the taxi and getting in the taxi and getting away. Um, uh, I don't know, it was just incredible. And <laughs> I remember getting to the airport and sitting on the seat as close as I could to the door to get on the plane and even the wait for the plane and Terry and I were just, you know, and Liza were just all just, I don't know, we weren't even breathing, I don't think. We were so terrified and we just needed to get out of this country. And then we got on the plane and the plane took off and I actually had to like be pinching myself going, we actually got away. We really aren't in prison anymore. I got back to Sydney. I actually kissed the ground at Sydney Airport. <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. And then I think I had jet lag for about five days after that. I just was an absolute, I think all the stress and all the everything, I just couldn't get out of bed for about five days when we got home. Someone's got to make a movie of this one day, well, surely. So I'm really, look, anyone out there that <laughs> wants to um, who, do who, the book, like I've kind of got five books in the computer a bit but not and they're all, it's all in my head and I have got great memory on it all. But it, I'd really love if they did a movie, uh, there's some other scenes. What about even the scene of Hayden hanging off the back of the, oh, the bloody was, cattle truck? Yeah, that was like, crazy. That's an Australian movie scene well, that, that they was, should have in like Red Dog or something. Well, that was the other story. If we go back to the very start of our conversation when I said when I first met you and we were on tour in North Queensland. So this is a great way to, to, to wrap it up because we started yes. here we're, we're coming back again. And there was, as I said, there was three things that I remember. One was the... Um, original start of that with the um, show in Bowen. Yes. The other one was us driving along in the truck one time and you guys were, you girls were way ahead of us. And we Drago. threw all the bull rushes and you jumped the out, car. you jumped out naked and yep. had all these things and threw bull them at the car. Spears. We scared the shit out of us. But and we, the, that was so funny because the truck did a little death wobble. Oh, like man, it went, we, and yeah. heaven went off. We were, we were like <laughs> jumping out of our pants. So that was the and second we, one. One of the funniest things I think. I think <laughs> all back these on naked girls just through. jumping out on the on the we road. We looked like the mad naked Amazon race yeah, yeah. coming out. That, was, that was why we'd done it. Yeah, so that was number two. And the third thing that I remember vividly was me, Evan, and Hayden in the truck behind you guys because our yep. truck our truck could only go 100 k's an hour. We were yes. one of those rented trucks. The little so Hertz one that looks like a turtle yeah, with the black thing with yeah. that little turtle face And we on. had all the lighting equipment, the sound equipment, the costumes. We Very carried heavy all that sort of stuff. Truck. And we were driving, I can't remember, somewhere in, in North Queensland. It would have been, well, I think we were like between Blackwater and Mount Isa yeah, or something. So, yeah, something crazy like that. And we were going and we got stuck behind this cattle truck. And I think we were going. It was a road train. Yeah, yeah we're, that we're went, going up a sort of a hill. It, well, there's not really. Not a hill, but it was a lot of like it's an incline. Really, it's an incline, yeah. but out there, because everything's flat, it all looks like it's all flat, but there's actual inclines yeah. that make the trucks slow down to like five miles an hour. It was going so slow. Hour, and yeah. we were sitting. In the, but the problem was because I think the road was narrow, we couldn't overtake. You can't overtake. You got to just and, start, and we, red dust. Yeah. You can't see. So we're sitting in in our truck, just looking at this thing, bored out of our head because it felt like forever. And Hayden, your your husband at the time, goes, "Hey, 
can you go, I'm gonna jump on the back of it because there was a cow hanging out over the top, chewing, chewing hay, hay was spilling out over to the front of our windscreen. And he goes, I'm gonna jump out, jump on the back, get next to the cow, can you take a photo of it? And I went, yeah. oh yeah, cool. So he jumps on the back, he's hanging on the back of his road train, I'm, I'm snapping off photos, and then suddenly- It hits the top of the incline and It hits the top of goes, the incline and it just and takes off. And then to 200 miles an hour. And we were like, holy shit, Evan and I looked at each other going, what the? And so suddenly we just hit the accelerator trying to catch up to this truck. We're behind the truck, flashing the lights, pulling out into the, onto the other side of the and road. he's not gonna even know. He wouldn't even know, and we couldn't overtake him because we, we didn't have the speed. Exactly. We could only get to the 100 Ks. And we go, and we knew that coming up in about a few kilometres time, we actually had to take a turn off. Yeah, to go and to he's wherever stuck we're. on the back of the bloody and we, truck. And we thought, there's a good chance this truck's just going to keep going straight. We, what are we going to do? <laughs> so one of us, I don't know who it was, came up with the idea, hey, let's just drive up as close as Tell we can to, to get the truck. And I'm going to stick my arm out and try and pull him into the truck. <laughs> Luckily, we had it had a bonnet on the front of the truck. It wasn't like a, a flat one. So flat. there was a bit of a bonnet. So we pulled up right up as close as we could to this, you know, this road train going 100 k's an hour. <laughs> I'm, I'm leaning out of the passenger side of the truck. Evan's hanging onto my jeans and my belt so I wouldn't fall out. And I'm hanging out going, okay, just grab my arm. And, and he was covered in cow shit, he? was covered in yeah, and everything that had been flying, flying out of yep. the truck when it got... That's the funniest thing that you told me was seeing... Hayden hanging off the back of the truck with just cow pats smashing, smashing into him. him in. I love, I love, because, you know, yeah, he was my husband, but we did break up after eight months. <laughs> so you've got to know, I've got a bit of passive aggression towards him in there. And when you told me that, I was like, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. So we ended up, I ended up having the arm out the window. We sort of monkey gripped, he, yep. he monkey gripped onto my arm and I pulled him onto the bonnet and then we pulled over the side and we got him in the truck and, and like, yeah, that was just... And the adrenaline would have just oh. been so out there after something like that. But they're the road stories that I, I just love telling people. And that was the start of my adventure with you and the penthouse pets. There you so go. <laughs> Thank you, done for, thank you for having a chat with me. Hey, look, I love you so much. You're my bro. You know that. You know, I know that. Soul brother. I love you. And uh, I think we have had a lot of the same experiences in our mm. life. Our lives are very similar in that yeah. way. So it's really great because I know I can always count on you. And you have really helped me a couple of times in my life. One in particular, getting out of that mm. relationship in Lennox. And you came down and you stood there just being there and you're just like this martial arts energy that was there that I just really needed and I'll never forget it. I just feel like I've, yeah, just like you wouldn't know how important it is to have that soul connection and you've showed up in my son's life like this great male that I will always present you to him as a great mentor and thank you for that. <laughs> This has been another episode of the Bold and the Beautiful podcast.